What's up, everybody? This is just your friendly reminder of our sponsors. We are sponsored by the book sales of Rewilding the Modern Man and Awakening the Tranquil Warrior, both written by yours truly, Trenton Sweet, and my co-writer and co-host on the show wrote Awakening the Tranquil Warrior with me. And we are also sponsored by The Old Road Farm in Washington, Pennsylvania, a local to us, regenerative and beautiful family-owned farm. We are also sponsored by Energy Fitness Studio in Washington, Pennsylvania. Today, I had the pleasure of talking with Stephen Jenkinson. Maybe two months ago, a friend of ours who works at our favorite regenerative farm in southwestern Pennsylvania, her name is Luis, she said, you guys really need to talk to Stephen Jenkinson. He's coming into Pittsburgh in the end of August, and I think you guys would be really interested in him. And so I started doing some research, and I immediately was like, yeah, this is a very interesting man with a, a long life of some very beautiful things that you've done. And so just to give you a, a brief introduction here for the listeners, and there's a lot you can elaborate on. Um, Stephen has written several books, uh, A Generation's Worth, which is a spiritual workbook. There's The Reckoning, Die Wise, Sanity of the Soul, Coming of Age, or Come of Age rather, How It All Could Be, Money in the Soul's Desire, and then there's several films as well, which one of which is the one that you're bringing here to Pittsburgh. You've got the Dead Starling Session, The Lost Nation Road, Making of Humans, which is very interesting. Um, the Meaning of Death, the High Q Sessions, the Homecoming one, Grief Walker, and Still. And then he's also a culture activist, an author. Uh, and him and his wife, Natalie, who's fantastic to talk to and as far as organizing with you, um, you guys co-founded the Orphan Wisdom School. And I'd like to elaborate on that a little bit later as well. But Stephen, besides all those, he's also got a master's from Harvard in theology and a master's from the University of Toronto in social work, which is quite the combination of master's degrees. So can you uh, elaborate on any of those <laughs> things there? Well, it's tiring to listen to the, <laughs> to the, to the parade of activities. Um, fortunately, I didn't do them all at once. You know, they're spread out over quite a period of time. Of, uh, the lion's share of my life probably didn't take off, I think, until I was probably in my... Uh, it was a proto-life until my late 30s or early 40s, I think. Yeah. I mean, not that I'm an expert on the matter. You know, I was barely there at the time. But <laughs> but I think what happens is um, that your life is in a kind of generation uh, cyclone of sorts. You know, you don't really know what you're doing. You, you have plans, of course, and you make your moves and... Um, you put on a good front, I suppose. Yeah. But if somebody asks you the big why questions, aside from, you know, personal self-interest and so on, you probably don't have much of an answer. Yeah. Which may be, I mean, it's not unbecoming to be a bit of a beginner in your own life for a while. And then certain things coalesce, certain mayhem comes to call, you know, crises of one sort or another, which are remarkably human-making activities. I mean, I don't don't recommend them, but there's no need to recommend or not recommend crises because they're coming anyway. So so you make your peace if you can with the limitations that have announced themselves. 
And suddenly inside those limitations, things are possible, which without them never occurred to you. And that seems to be what, as I listened to the, to the list that you read, it seemed I, I sort of recognized that momentum, the kind of second half of my life thing uh, sort of took over finally yeah. and, and sort of shunted me to the side and said, okay, this self-determination stuff's got to end, man. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, you know, the final thing to say about it maybe is I was a young guy. I was on a boat in the Mediterranean and we were sinking. I mean, we were desperately bailing to stay afloat. It was a dangerous situation in the height of a Force 11 gale. <clears throat> and I was out on the deck by myself, literally tied to the wheel to not be washed overboard. I mean, it was that, it was that severe. And in that moment, I heard what I can only describe to you as a kind of voice, which stilled everything. I mean, there was still a storm somewhere. <clears throat> but somehow I wasn't in it. And the voice said, from this moment on, your work is to determine where your self-determination ends and your fate begins. And bang, I was back in the storm again. Everything seemed the same, <clears throat> excuse me, but nothing was. And from that day to this, I've, I guess I've, on my better days, I've done my best to, uh, follow through on that voice from wherever it came from yeah that said you have to find out that there's a got to to your stuff that has nothing to do with you that you have to obey it instead of determine it and it's a it was a wondrous announcement i have to say and Where i wasn't i wasn't raised with any of that kind of thing no no nothing religious nothing spiritual and so to be seized by the scruff of the neck at the age of about 20 in such a dramatic fashion you know it's very yeah. cinemagraphic really yeah yeah it was and so i've done my best to live up to the um you know the the technicolor event that that was where do you feel like that voice came from from spirit or god or... <laughs> well you know it's i mean if you if you give it a word you're eliminating a lot of other things right so yeah. I, I think people intuitively understand a circumstance like I've described to you. It's a little unusual. It's a little grandiose, yeah. I'll grant you. But um, it is, I, the only way I can describe it to you accurately is this. Before that moment, there was no such thing as whatever that was. Mm -hmm. Me. Yeah. After that moment, that's all there was. I like it. That's a very good description. <laughs> it's like an awakening. Yeah. You were, you were awakened to. I love that. And you, you know, you write about spirit and you write about meditation and you write about a lot of those things too, that especially as a, a young, like you were saying, like determined man, you, you kind of live ego, egotistically instead of through a purpose. And so I like that. I think that's a really impressive story there. What were you doing out on the seas in the Mediterranean? <laughs> I was, uh, let's see, I was, I ended up in, in Europe on my own. Uh, I was supposed to go with a, a beautiful woman from Chicago. And at the last minute, I got a Dear John letter, an authentic <laughs> Dear John letter, man. And so, you know, I had no reason to go, but less reason to stay. So somehow I went anyway in a, in a fog of 
misshapen brokenness, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, if, if, if she had to come with me, none of that stuff would have happened almost certainly. Yeah. Cause we would have been more careful or whatever it was. Yeah. So I, I was, I had stowed away on a Greek luxury liner out of Malaga, Spain. That's how I ended up in Gibraltar and jumped a ship in Gibraltar. This sounds like I was very adventurous <laughs> guy. That's not true at all. I wasn't at all. But I jumped a ship in Gibraltar because I could feel that they were going to find me on the boat, you know, as a stowaway. And within a couple of days, I had a job as a stonemason during the daytime. And I was playing in a bar at night. <laughs> on the main drag of Gibraltar. And, and while there, <clears throat> I met this Mexican-American guy who invited me to join the crew of a sailing ship that was just going to take this old boat, this old catch from Gibraltar to Malta so they could trick it out for the carriage trade. And we never made it. <laughs> and there were six of us on board and we all made it through with our lives. But uh, it was very much touch and go. We ran out of water, ran out of food. And uh, you think this stuff doesn't happen anymore because the world is too mapped out of place. But at that time, that's exactly what did happen. And arrested by the Sicilian Coast Guard and Interpol was involved and they confiscated passports and couldn't <laughs> go anywhere and figured we were gun runners or drug ruggers runners out of the Middle East somehow. <laughs> None of those things were true. We were just buffoons. But that uh, sounds like a fantastic yeah. movie right there. <laughs> yeah, it, it is indeed. I mean, all this stuff happened in about, you know, a couple of months time. And we were featured in the local newspaper for the dramatic rescue at dawn, as they said. <laughs> and then I was cut loose. Finally, they just unceremoniously give us our passport and told us to bugger off. And we uh, went to the four winds, so to speak, and never saw each other again. And within a week after that, I was in not very good health because of the hardship of the thing. And I was in the, in uh, Paris <clears throat> where I went into the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in order to get, get some relief from the street. I was getting hidden up on the street all the time for extra change. I didn't look like a guy who had a spare change, but for some reason, on one particular day, seven people asked me, for spare change it was just it was wild so i go into notre dame and i'm sitting in the middle of the place and don't you know here comes a guy down the aisle coming towards me and it's exactly what he asked for it's he's the eighth guy that day who's asking me for money in the church yeah and you know we study french at school here in canada so i i had enough french to say to him you know man it's very unbecoming for you to be begging for money in the church <laughs> kind of dismissed him you know yeah. And he, his expression didn't change. He bowed, actually, to me, kind of a half bow, took a couple of steps backwards. I looked away from him to tell him, we're done here, basically. And then I looked back to make sure he was going. And he was gone. I mean, he was gone. There was nowhere for him to go. <laughs> but poof, he was no more. And uh, call that what you will. But uh, I know an angel when I see one. Yeah. Is that kind of is that kind of like a prelude to the book uh, on money? Is that does that play a part in that book? I, I ordered it from Amazon. Um, oh, yeah. I've not got it yet, so I haven't got to dive into it. But I'm really curious. Is that kind of prelude to that? <laughs> I mean, how could it not? Right. Yeah. Right. How could there not be some kind of willingness on my end after something like that to um, 
<clears throat> to contemplate the standard contortions that happen around money, all the Puritanism and the, the strange asceticism and all of that stuff. Yeah. From a kind of, from a point of view of, you know, what constitutes genuine generosity and, and what is almsgiving and uh, why are artistic people so screwed up about money and money people so screwed up about things artistic? You know, that kind of stuff is... Yeah. It was kind of the obvious place to go after an angel in Notre Dame. Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful place to run into an angel too. And the eighth time that day asking for some spare change and you just went through a very dramatic life change where you were, you were guided to move out of your ego and into something with purpose. And then you're immediately asked over and over again for spare change. For money I didn't have. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. What you, you mentioned alm giving. What is alm giving? Alms. Alms is it's just an old word for um, charity. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know that alms meant. Alms, okay. yeah. Well, giving of alms, it's a kind of medieval phrase. Okay. And it meant a, a kind of, it's something like tithing. Tithing means you take a, a set portion of your income and you deliberately uh, release it to some other circumstance, you give it away to, a, in other words, it's not happenstantially, you're waiting for somebody to hit you up, you actually programmatically part with a percentage of everything that comes to you. It's the same basic principle is, is you're not waiting to be asked, you're, yeah. pro you're proactively recirculating some of the money and the good fortune that comes to you. That's what almsgiving is basically. I like what well, it seems like you've kind of structured your life in a way that that's you do a lot of that with most of your work. Um, which speaking of that, let's talk about the the school that you and your wife started. You want to? I think this is a good time to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, it's called the Orphan Wisdom School. It was going gangbusters until the famous 2020 and the years that followed that. So things have um, changed a little bit in terms of people's willingness to congregate and to and to travel and so forth. And of course, what they do with their money. But um, <clears throat> I, I was uh, trying to find a way of categorizing this enterprise. Because it's not a school that's related in any direct way to my work in the death trade, for example, when I was working in palliative care. And I come to realize I was teaching a kind of history school in a way. It was the history of the, un, it was the unauthorized history of this European fantasy called America. Yeah. Not the United States of, not a particular country, but the notion that became your country where you are and my country where my, I am and yeah. certain aspects of Mexico and beyond. Yeah. And I was, yeah. just one, I was just wondering, basically, how could it have gone so sideways so quickly in in terms of human history it's a very quick uh experiment and it's and it's in so many ways a catastrophic experiment that could have that had so much so much promise so many possibilities or so it would seem on paper yeah. so it's, it's simply that kind of um that, that sense of sorrow about it and lot, missed opportunity yeah. That the world, world, no doubt, could have been a better place than it is. And uh, now, of course, all of the ecological dilemmas that ensue from our way of life. Yeah. And all of those things became 
the kernel of uh, what I wanted to uh, uh, concern myself with. People came from all over the world every year, twice a year for two years as was the basic program. And then we had a kind of graduate class thereafter. And so, um, I mean, I was, I was astounded that people were coming from, you know, age 17 to about age 80 or so was this was the age span. And people were very keen to learn things, not to replace their old beliefs, but to learn about their old beliefs instead, and to commit themselves to a a kind of, um, you could say, a, a, a disciplined inquiry. That's yeah. the best way I could describe it to you. And and it was, you know, along with the Knights of Grief and Mystery, it's probably the best thing I've done, I think. Oh, wow. I think, you know, I've only read through your resume. You know, I don't I don't know everything. But when I was reading through your resume, I, I love that school. I love the idea of that. And obviously what you're bringing to Pittsburgh is a beautiful thing, too. When you are teaching stuff at your school, what do you do you like guide people towards like permaculture or regenerative kind of sustainable lifestyles like is a solution to the problems that were caused in these you know new world countries because of you know greed and things like that like where are you leaning people towards just curious i i wouldn't characterize the enterprise in those terms i'm i'm not um baptizing somebody in my personal certainties yeah i guess no i mean we're we're here on a farm we practice a certain kind of farming i wouldn't know how to give it a name it probably has elements of the things that you mentioned Uh, it's responsible it's um it's uh it's accountable it's uh, not governed by um mortgages and fertilizers and things of this kind <clears throat> and uh, people have come and gone on the farm over the years young people have come to learn these things mm-hmm. but the school the school is uh, is an attempt to wonder how things got this way oh okay yeah and if you don't have that as your foundation then all the fixing strategies are, are basically uh fated to re- reproduce how you got here yet one more time in a, in a strangely, sadly creative fashion. Yeah. So I say our job is to begin with the poverties, yeah. not to begin with the hero stories. I mean, anybody can do that. And lots of people do the idea being that the only way we can count on you is to encourage you and to be hopeful and to restore your faith in humanity and all that nonsense and that's we we can't treat you like a human being and we can't treat you like a grown up we have to treat you like you're seven and <laughs> preach you everything first and then feed it to you very like a baby bird and you know it's just not the way i roll out here yeah yeah you've just described the public school system in the states and, anyhow <laughs> and and beyond i mean the university yeah. system it seems to me now yeah it's definitely so i i, I think I, you got to be respectful to people by asking things of them yeah, so that's what this, that's how the school's structured, and that's how the farm is structured as well. I like that. I like that. What do you What do you have on your farm? Because it, it sounds like if you had to put a label on it, which you don't have to, but it sounds very regenerative and very healthy for the ecology and for humans as well. So, you, so you're the, in, what do we have on the farm? Yeah. Well, we just um, I just 
I found an old barn across the river here. I could almost see the old site of it. A 120-year-old barn or so that was uh, left in disrepair, but it was still salvageable. And I made a deal with the owner and so on. Long story short, we we're putting the finishing touches on it. We moved it across the river and uh, rebuilt it oh, wow. in its original form. Just put a new roof on. Everything else is original. And it's uh, all tongue and, and sorry, post and beam construction. So there's no big screws and there's not a lot of metal except for the roof. And very proud of the fact that the farm has been restored to its to its early incarnation. Yeah. And it's a, it's a working farm. So it's proper to have a, a, a big storage barn like this one. Yeah. And we have sheep here and uh, pigs, typically uh, geese, ducks and chickens. And then a lot of uh, orchard, I should say, and then a lot of, you know, human food grown and some animal food grown. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. That sounds like a beautiful place to be. And that's, that's a, on the, a lucky thing. Yeah, that's beautiful. Is it on the same property as the school is too? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, we built a, uh, <clears throat> a teaching hall after the fashion of uh, one of the great halls in... Um, in Scandinavia, the, the the Viking halls with the hearth down the middle of it and uh, venting it through the through the ceiling and um, it's a beautiful beautiful place. It's only five or six years old, but people see it and they say, "My God, where'd you bring this from?" As if it was another <laughs> kind of barn, you know. <clears throat> but it's actually brand new and and um, a nod and acknowledgement of uh, some portion of my personal ancestry is there. Northern European, then, right? Oh yeah, Northern European certainly. Yeah, I could definitely see that. That's my ancestry is. I would use the word Celtic, but it seems as though in history there's not a whole lot of evidence of what actually Celtic is. But Northern European is a lot of mine yeah. as well, so I can relate to a lot of that. In fact, the um, I don't want to say symbolism, but like the screen you have that pops up before your face does, like your your symbol, um, it resonates with me, and I, I'm not sure why. Even the colors. Um, where did that image come from? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> we moved out to the West Coast for about 20 minutes one time <laughs> for my wife to pursue a job that didn't quite work out for her. And uh, we couldn't cross back across the Rockies in the wintertime because it's too, too treacherous, you know, too unpredictable. So we were kind of locked in for a couple of three months. And I just one day I just asked her to teach me the rudiments of bead work right on leather because I had some leather and I was going to make a bag anyway and now I had this leisure time forced upon me <laughs> and once she showed me the rudiments I sketched out this design for the face of the bag and it was exactly the image that you're referring to it's the orphan wisdom kind of multi-pronged almost yeah. ant antler-like yeah. uh, uh, design and that's it and it announced itself right away and it said this is the, this is the, the, the brand as in, you know, the, I don't want to say logo because that sounds commercial. It's a, but anyway, it carries a lot of understandings that, that, that school's rooted in, yeah. in an image that's not literal. Yeah. That it's pictographic. Yeah. Just like you said, undefined and leaves you to wonder. Correct. Yeah. There's a bit of wonder element to it and a bit of circumlocution to it. A bit of a sense of return, but not not predictable return. Yeah, it's yeah. all there. 
It's really great. I just started learning a lot about sacred geometry and like the physics of spirituality with a, a teacher here in Pittsburgh. And I don't know if you'll be here very long. Her name is Kelly Brown and she does a free physics of spirituality class, which is sacred geometry on Monday nights. And she's brilliant. And that image itself, it, it resonates um, just like you said, the circle and the coming back in the cyclical manner, but doesn't really show a beginning or an end. Uh, it's beautiful. And it also reminds me of um, the god Cernanos, if you're familiar with that name. He was like the woodlands god in like the Celtic um, like mythology. But anyhow, we jumped off topic there for a second. Let's talk about the let's talk about what you're bringing to Pittsburgh real quick. It's amazing. I have to tell you, it's um. It, the way it happened was completely uh, unpredictable. I got an email from a guy, singer, songwriter, fellow that I didn't know. Could he come over and talk to me about songwriting? I wrote back to him. I said, I know nothing about songwriting. He said, <clears throat> that's not what I figure. He said, I've, re I've read stuff that you've written, and I think it's, it's, it's applicable. It, I said, fine, I won't argue with you, but I'm just telling you, I don't think so. So he came here, and we talked about it. And uh, when he left, he left me a CD, you know, and I get I get sent and left a lot of stuff, books and CDs and things. And honestly, I mean, it's not going to sound very generous, but most of them are not that good. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's a kind gesture, but, um, you know, life's only so long, you know, so yeah. you have to decide what you're going to do with the time you've got. So and so I just left that CD sitting there and then he wrote me back uh, as a kind of thank you note for the time. And he said, Pete. Underneath, he said, P.S., if you're ever looking for a band, comma, I know this guy, he says. Just left it like that. Like, when, how would I ever need a band for crying out loud? Like, so I just left it, you know. In the same week, literally, an American charitable trust got in touch with me. He said, we want to give you some money so your work can be more well-known in this country. That's cool. Preferably by we would pay you to tour around and teach. I thought, huh. So I just wrote this guy and I don't know why I did it to this day, but I said to him, look, man, this thing just came my way. We could put something together and take it on the road. Why did I think that that was possible? I don't know. And he wrote back, he wrote back a one word response. He said, in, that's all he said. That's when <laughs> yeah, I listened yeah. to this CD and the CD was amazing. I have to say it was amazing. It was a live recording of a concert that he had done some couple of years before. And I knew the guy was good. I mean, not just technically good. I know he was soulfully good. So honestly, the first gig we did together was a sold out recital hall in New York City. The first show on that five or six city tour, I think. And I remember looking at him 10 or 15 minutes in. And the look that we exchanged was, um, <clears throat> this is already something. Mm. There's a lot of places for it to go, but it's already here. And then, in other words, we were old enough <clears throat> that neither one of us were trying to figure out what we're, we're good, we were good at or trying to establish our credentials or, or be the guy. Yeah. It, was, it was never there. It's never been there. That's seven or eight years ago now. <laughs> and um, so what is it? Well, it's a... Uh, it's medicine. I'll say that about it. It's, it's storytelling after a fashion. It's musical. 
it's not as, as theatrical as it is ceremonial. I think that's the best word to describe it. Okay. Ceremonial meaning I'm trying to dispense with the idea that there's an audience there that's just sitting there passively voting on whether they like something or not, and that's their only function. I'm, I'm imploring them to participate actively in the evening and in its outcome, because I am saying in several different ways, listen, man, we're in a troubled time. And every night and every day should be spent with yeah. being alert to that. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so you proceed with this alertness in public and you employ people you know, to, for the sake of a kind of better day. So, yeah. so many of the stories that are form up the show came from my time in the death trade. There's a lot of songs that Gregory's um, done before I met him that form part of the show. And then we've, uh, we've begun to compose songs together for the first time. And we're basic, we've had, we got three records out now. So this is a fourth one that we're almost finished. And so uh, this tour that begins tomorrow, literally I'm leaving home tomorrow for the East coast of Canada and then Europe and then back to your part of the world and so on. That's, um, that's a place where the new record is gonna find its, uh, its uh, beautiful expression, I think. And, um, and it's tearful and it's joyful and um, you could call it a love letter. I like that. That's what it is. I like that. That's that's beautiful. It's funny because when I first when I first saw it, I thought theatrical. And then the more I looked into it, the more I couldn't put a word to it. So I like how you put the word ceremonial into it. Yeah. That's I feel like that describes very well what you have going on. The I reason really people cool. are a little unsure about it is not because it's so novel, it's so modern, it's so unprecedented. No. Mm -hmm. This kind of thing is so old that nobody is alive has really seen it. Yeah. You know, it's <clears throat> it's just an old, old art form that um is not so it's not really a spectacle, it's not really a performance, it's an invocation. It's an involvement of everybody all together. Yeah, it's a, there's a sense of urgency about the thing yeah. that prevents it. And or rescues it from being a spectacle or just a diversion or a nice alternative to Netflix for the night. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we all have enough of that. I don't need any more of that. <laughs> way more, way more than enough. <laughs> yeah, and the musician, uh, Gregory Hoskins, right? That's his, yeah. his mm -hmm. full name. Where is he from originally? Is he from your neck of the woods or is he he's, an American? No, he's no, he's from here. He's uh He's had a 30 plus year career in, uh, in the singer songwriter business and in composing. And um, I mean, that's for somebody to still be doing it without having become a star at some point to, to sustain them and, and give them an opportunity just to do the best of thing, you know, a million times yeah. is remarkable a testimony to his perseverance and his kind of artistic vision. So yeah. he, he brings that to this thing. And I bring, uh, I suppose, some capacity with the language in a kind of stand and deliver fashion. Yeah. And um, and off we go. And it's a two hour, uh, no intermission uh, blast. Just a total blast. <laughs> it is. It is. It's. Uh, 
I mean, I'd love to see it someday. <laughs> Are you recording as you? Oh as yeah, you oh yeah. But you know, when you're in the grip of the thing, yeah, and you're you're seized by it, and it's flowing through you, and it's taking no prisoners as it does so. You're not really sitting there, you know, part of you watching the rest of you saying, "Huh, this is kind of interesting." <clears throat> you know, there's no point of contact between me really and what happens until it's over. Yeah. Then I have a sense oh. of what we did, but during the during the show, yeah. it's a it's a kind of I mean, you wouldn't want to call it something like possession, spirit possession or it's, <laughs> it's too strange sounding. It's it's um you're in a, a kind of way of life that's very old and very recognizable to me and uh, and very unhesitating. Yeah, almost like uh, like a flow, right? Like kind of like you're you're really involved in loving what you're doing. So you're just doing I, I could almost relate it to like an athlete kind of in the flow of their like running that's, or that's a good analogy it, there is a, there's an athletic enduring element to it that's correct yeah. you have to be absolutely on your toes yeah you know in my in the place that i stand and we we improvise quite a bit so you have to be extremely alert and extremely present to be able to improvise you know on a dime so to speak yeah but it does happen and it's a wondrous thing because we're literally calling something out of nothing yeah. when we're doing it. And, uh, you know, people come up to me afterwards in the book signing lines and so on. Oh yeah. And they're beside themselves. They still can't find the language. They say things to me like, I didn't know why I came. I didn't know what to expect. And now that I've seen it, I don't know what it was. <laughs> and they're, they're kind of marveled by, by that, that kind of, they're not confused. They're mesmerized. So you could say, well, that's, that's got to be the best theater there is. Yeah, that's a talent to be able to do that. Yeah, I suppose it is. And, uh, you know, at this stage in the proceedings, I mean, I'm, I'm about to turn 69 years old. You know, the rock star thing is supposed to be a, a young man's game. <laughs> but it's not working out in this case. <laughs> uh, that Honestly, it must feel really good, though, when you get the response like that instead of, you know, just hearing like, that was good. But when you hear people go, I don't know why I loved it. I really loved it. I can't describe why I loved it, but that was really fucking cool. <laughs> well, make no mistake. I know that it's good. Yeah, that's really I know good. when I know when I'm doing it, that it's good. So it's a, you, it's, a, it's a pleasure that that people yeah. recognize that and are willing to let me know about it. But I'm not saying that I'm standing up there wondering if this is if this counts for anything. Yeah. No, this really counts. The Knights of Grief and Mystery is one example of the real thing. I like that. Have you have you watched any of the films that you've done? Have you watched them after they were produced? Yeah, maybe you know once or twice. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the it's not the favorite thing to do to watch yourself. <laughs> You know, just to watch yourself for the sake of, uh, I don't know what, adjudicating what you've done. Yeah. You know, because there's a certain amount of, like the creative impulse is always heading towards what you have not yet done. Yeah. It doesn't linger over what you've done. It, it leaves that for others. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't make me in any way superior to them. I'm just, I'm just saying that 
I have a different responsibility. You know, that if something new is going to be born, I have to be there. Yeah. I can't be there at the former births, right? I can be proud of them. I can learn from them. I can not disavow them, although that's true. But I don't linger with them. You know, we, there's another show to do. There's a thing, there are things to be learned from the last one. There's things that want to appear that haven't appeared yet. And all of that stuff is enormously exciting, but asks everything of you. And then occasionally somebody will say, you know that thing you did? And you say, yeah. They say, man, I love that thing so much. And you say, you know, I loved it too. And then you get it, you can go back and forth a bit, you know, but it's not nostalgic, right? It's a yeah. certain degree of pride and a certain sense of uh, accomplishment and a certain understanding of what our responsibilities are to make sure that we're, that what comes to us is current, not retrospective. It's current. Yeah. 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 And sometimes you've, you've changed a lot from the time something was produced and the time that you are watching it. So I and totally the times too, the times <clears throat> have changed a lot. Yes. I mean, when I, we started this thing, nobody knew what a COVID-19 was. <laughs> yeah. Right. And all of yeah. the, the crazy things that are still around as a result yeah. of those days, just to take one thing. Another thing is, you know, the, the disposition that young people have with respect to people my age and with respect to the, yeah. to the oncomingness of certain um, uh, ecological dilemmas. Yeah. I mean, things are much different now, much more uh, polarized and much yeah. more hostile. <clears throat> and the, the intergenerational dilemmas are really acute. I mean, that's that's a much different scene from when we got started. So yeah. I would say probably a third of the show is directed specifically to young people, not just bearing them in mind, but talking to them in real time about these things. So it's yeah. I wouldn't call it topical. I would call it the Knights of Grief and Mystery is a prophetic enterprise. A prophetic. And that's why I'd like to go see it someday. <laughs> Uh, you're absolutely right. They've <clears throat> in the establishments in the Western world, well, their whole world, really, they've found a lot of ways to polarize us and they've separated us from uh, in so many ways that there's just many reasons people could not agree with one another. And that's I love I love podcasts and long forum discussions, especially from people like I agree with and I understand almost everything you're saying. And so I don't have anything there but like in conversations where people on one side will talk to someone else on another side quote unquote if they talk for an hour or so most people can find out that they have a lot of the same loves and passions and they believe the things they do for a positive reason and so I think that long discussions are really important for kind of resolving what they've done with the polarization of or the separation of our country in that way and so or I think it's or they realize that the differences between them are not problems to solve. They don't have to agree. Exactly. They don't have to see things the same way. That's very true. That's very a true. kind of tyranny that nobody needs. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with that entirely. I love that. And I, I really enjoy that. There's one of your books. Um, is it the, the come of age book? Is that yeah. kind of like talking about that specific thing right there that you were just saying, like between, you know, the, the young and like the elder generations. Correct. Not, um, 
It's a book principally about elderhood, not about aging. And there's a big difference between those two things. Elderhood is a condition of cultural service that's rooted in a kind of life experience and a, and a regime of defeat that sets upon people towards the ending of their lives. A regime of defeat where you're not a hero, you're not um, a role model, you're, you undo all of that stuff yeah. so that you, you can readdress what it means to be human, not yeah. what it means to be exemplary or special. And so it's a book about, I think the subtitle of the book is um, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. So I'm, I'm strongly making the case that older people need to achieve elderhood yeah. and young people need to seek them out. Yeah. And we're, we're suffering enormously in the West for want of both of those things. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the factions that kind of run the world have made it appear that the elders don't know what they're talking about. They've taken away the massive knowledge of the elders and the wise in our society and they've made they've made a mockery a false mockery of those people who have lived decades longer in harder situations and they've they've made them seem like they didn't know what they were talking about and i can i can relate to that very heavily i think we <clears throat> we live in a wonderful world where we have access to all this knowledge now and so it's important that we're able to actually to talk to those people and have those conversations. But oh, I like that. I, I've ordered several of your books on Amazon. I'm waiting on a couple of them now. I was hoping to be able to read a couple of them before I got to talk to you, but um, the summaries of all of them are, are very descriptive. When did you write your first book? How old were you when you published your first? I'd have to guess, I think uh, early forties, mid forties, probably in there. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, you, so there was a long time of learning in between that, that oh, yeah. experience on the boat to. Oh God. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, you, if you're going to write a book, which a lot of people are doing it these days, mm -hmm. it's not always clear that there's a life that the book derives from. Yeah. It's almost the other way around. Yeah. Yep. You know, that the life derives from the book, which is a real misshapen thing. I mean, right. books, books should have fingerprints and, and growth rings and stretch marks all over them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a sign that they came from somewhere yeah. and that they, you can trace their lineage in some fact. I don't mean racially now. I mean, I mean, ideationally, you should be able to trace something. And, <clears throat> and you got to live a long time between books, too. That's the other thing. So if you happen to be a writing type, <clears throat> you can't ignore your life for the sake of the, the art because the, the life informs the art. That's where it derives from. That's its, its crude material. It's, it's, it's raw material comes from the life that you try to manage, the life that you fail at as much as it's any, uh, you know, string of, of achievements or accomplishments. Yeah. 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 I get that entirely. Because a lot of people will, uh, they'll write their books before their stories. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a beginner's problem. <laughs> how long was it between? If you can just think on top of your head, how long was it be, between when you authored your first book until your most recent book? Was there a, you said your 
69 now and so if you're in your 40s i mean that's heck that's 30 years of writing books right there yeah not in any regular way i mean there's been there's been long periods of time and then and then it's very contracted in another circumstance like <clears throat> a book i did called uh, a generation's worth which was a book that i i undertook during the pandemic it's not really about the pandemic but it's it uses the pandemic as a prison prism yeah. excuse me prism <laughs> um that that book happened because um i was doing a series of podcasts for all the obvious reasons of not being able to travel and so on and I realized that I could tell by the the tone of the interactions during these podcasts that something of merit was happening that would could stand up to be to being reread and reread. And so I just looked at the transcripts at first and edited them, you know, for the sake of getting rid of ums and ahs and things like that. Mm. And I was very pleased with what I saw. And then I to what I had done beforehand is made is prepared for each session again, as if I'd never done it before. Hmm. And the preparation notes were their own contribution to this book. So that's what it became. It became a sequence of the preparation notes, the transcript of the event per se, and then the aftermath in the, uh, that I wrote a couple of days after each one of these podcasts, which I did, I think, a series of four or five, I've forgotten now. And each one of those constituted one of the chapters in the book. So in that sense, it didn't need years and years between books because that was an event that occurred in real time. And it's a bit of a it's a bit of record of a record of an encounter between myself and people concerned about the matters that I was bringing forward. So there's different kinds of books as well, we should say there's I mean, I haven't written a novel. I won't do that. But uh, the things that I do, I suppose they're 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 exercises in wondering, not exercises in certainty. I like that. So how do you at you because you travel the world and you're constantly traveling and mm -hmm. teaching and performing for a lack of a better word, but you're like that athletic flow you were talking about earlier. You you do this couple nights a week every week you said you're 69 years old now and you've been doing this for quite a while so what's how do you do it how do you stay mentally and physically prepared for this uh vitamins helps yeah <laughs> got to do that no you got to be you're on the road you got to be very responsible you know yeah. you got to keep the machine and and respect it you know yeah. uh and then you got to be a pro <clears throat> professionals are people who know how to do when the shit hits the fan yeah because on the road the shit can hit the fan easily i mean i just i just came off a stint in uh in the southwest of your country and then up in the northeast where we got food poisoning two of us Oof. so it was i mean it was a desperate 36 hours man and we had a show where there was a pail on the stage just off stage and you know just in case <laughs> i mean it was that bad wow so how do you do the thing I was describing to you in that kind of condition? And the answer is, you got to come from a different place. Yeah. You can't come from firing on all cylinders and yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's a different study, right? And and you got to cultivate your physical well-being, but you got to integrate that with a sense of, you know, purpose about what you're doing there, a sense of responsibility and mission, you could say. 
and a, and a healthy respect for the people who are putting their money down on the off chance that you're worth the trouble. I mean, you got to bear all that stuff in mind all the time. And I guess there's another thing I could add here too. I, as you may have heard, Sinead O'Connor recently died. And um, I was watching an interview with this woman who I didn't, I mean, I certainly knew of her, but I didn't follow her career in any way. But she, in towards what turned out to be the end of her life, she was in her mid fifties when she died a few weeks ago. And she said her, she thought her job as a performer, as a musician, as an artist came to this. She was contending with the realities of the recording artist marketplace and all the record companies, all that, that, that terrible dilemma that you have to sort out when you become notorious and successful and so on. She said her job was to keep alive her relationship with the, with the, the great beyond, I think is how she put it, or heaven. I'm not sure how she said it, but her job was to get to the other side of the water in a given night with her relationship with the holy intact. Mm. I mean, that's as simple as that sounds. Yeah. It's a beautiful evocation of the slings and arrows of how it can go otherwise. Yes. If you lose there your you way, if you forget what you're doing, if you forget why you're doing it and you forget how lucky you are to be able to do it and you fail to live up to the responsibilities that come with the package, then you can easily break the covenant and be immensely successful for a while and somehow there's a there's a broken downness in there that you're waiting to discover you don't know that but you are so in our case you know we're we're older men who are not trying to prove anything who are not trying to find out what we're good at who are not lost in any way or not living out some you know some performing fantasy yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing fantastic about being on the road. <laughs> the, the two hours on the stage, there's another 22 hours in any given day, which is airports and rent rental cars and, and breakdowns and bad food <laughs> and and you know questionable responses and and lousy sound systems. I could just go on and on and on and on and on, you know, to the point where nobody's interested in, in anymore. But <laughs> it is part of the, I mean, it is running away to the circus. That's what we do. You know, we go out on a tour for maybe three weeks at a time. This this time we're going for a month starting tomorrow. And uh, <clears throat> you got to have your shit together. <laughs> you know, and when one of you is not doing so well, just didn't sleep well or, or is feeling despondent about a particular response that we got on a given night. It's the responsibility of the rest of the people who are touring to bear that in mind and to understand it and not to either shame it or talk the person out of it, but legitimize, you know, their, their struggles with the thing. And, uh, you know, I'm nominally the captain of the ship, so to speak. And uh, so I have to bear all this kind of stuff in mind. And of course I have my days as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, your, your real life, is the underpinning for the two hours on the stage. It's not, it's not an escape from it. It's an incarnation of it instead. So we understand it to be a great privilege. And I could complain about the you know, questionable food and all the rest, but, but I don't really. Yeah. 
I know it more entertaining. I know that it's not going to last, for example. Yeah. Because I'm not going to last. But to get to do it now and for people to come and for people to help us locally to organize these things, I mean, that should never work as a business model. It should completely fail every time. <laughs> We're on the border of failing all the time. <laughs> but it's a look, it's just it's just a fine thing. And if you're, if you're still confused, you who are listening based on what I've said so far, come and find out for yourself and you'll see I ain't lying to you. <laughs> I'm not hyping you about this. This shit's for real. <laughs> shit's for real. <laughs> I like that. That's that's even a good closing statement there. So anybody who is um, what I didn't write this down in my notes for some reason, but I'll definitely put this in the show notes for the show. And when I start um, putting this out there to promote um, where where exactly are you doing the show in Pittsburgh, Do you know, offhand. Something red. What's it called, Natalie? This is red is the name of the venue. This is red. Okay, cool. Do you know it? I I have been past it. I've never actually been in it, but I do know where it is. So it's a former Slavonic church. It's an amazing. We've played there maybe four or five years ago. Oh, really? I was going to ask you if you if you played in the area before. Yeah, yeah. I know it. It's it's really cool how uh, how I heard about you from um, that Luis um, that works at that regenerative farm. She's She's a wonderful woman and she's, she's, she has a master's in engineering and she was just like, she was like, this guy is really interesting and he's coming and he's, he told me and my wife, he said, I think you guys would really love what he's got going on. And she didn't really know how to describe it either. Um, And I'm glad that she didn't because when you put words to to things that are too descriptive, it can take away from them. And Mm -hmm. this conversation, um, I definitely have. I had respect for you already, but now I have even more respect for you and what you've done and what you are doing. And I hope our listeners, I hope you're welcome. And I hope our listeners have the same reaction to this. And I hope that they realize how special something like this can be. Like you said, it's not like no offense to, you know, ballets and stuff, because there's a lot of ballets and performers in Pittsburgh, but it's not a typical show that's been done thousands of times in the same fashion. Um, this is this is new. This is different. Like you said, it's ceremonial. So um, yeah, I think it's it, really beautiful. It's so old. It's new again. It's so old. It's new. Yeah, we're in a time of remembering and awakening, like you had said earlier. Like the school, you know, that you you and your wife that you guys run and founded. It's it's kind of just showing the the people what has you know the the areas where we've gone wrong. And, uh, and then allowing people to be creative with their own ideas and, uh, and solutions with that. And it sounds a lot like um, the performance is very similar to that. You can interpret it through your own human filter and uh, in, whatever, in whatever way you desire to. I would call it, it's a beautiful work. A work, a work. Yeah. I like it's, that. That's, that's what we're doing. We're working beautifully for a time we might not live to see. <laughs> so let's, let, let's get to it. I mean, that's, that's the spirit of the thing. Let's, yeah. let's get to it. There's nothing to wait for now. Yeah. That's like the old saying, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I say 25, but yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah there you go. <laughs> Even more urgent. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, awesome, man. I, I know we're up, we're up to about an hour here. So um, do you have any last like final words of wisdom or anything for the listeners? Come to the show. Come to the show. I'm, August I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm not hesitating. 
<laughs> and at my, at my age, I ain't wasting my time. So, you know, this thing is for real and it's on. Perfect. Perfect. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for joining yeah. me today. It was a, a great conversation and I do really appreciate your time. Thank you. And I appreciate yours. Thanks for the questions, man. Thanks, man. Okay. Bye-bye now. Hey, everybody. I'm back again to remind you for the second time in this episode that we are sponsored by the book sales of Rewilding the Modern Man, written by yours truly, Trenton Sweet, and the book sales of Awakening the Tranquil Warrior, written by myself and my wife, Caitlin. Two books that you can find basically anywhere that you buy books. So check them out. We are also sponsored by Energy Fitness Studio in Washington, Pennsylvania. So your participation there also sponsors this podcast. And thank you very much for your support. We are also sponsored by The Old Road Farm in Washington, Pennsylvania. A beautiful family-owned regenerative farm doing everything the right way. And if you want to know more about them, and I think that you should, check them out at theoldroadfarm.com.